Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, we are joined by Representative Elaine Luria, who is a second-term Democratic congresswoman representing Virginia's 2nd District. In Congress, she serves as vice chair of the House Armed Services Committee. Roger and Representative Luria discuss her 20-year service in the U.S. Navy, achieving the rank of commander, and service in both Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom. The two also discuss deterring China, building a 600-ship Navy, and bipartisanship in Congress. If you enjoyed this conversation, make sure to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Congresswoman Elaine Luria, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. You're known in Washington as a leading voice in the U.S. Congress, a Democratic voice in the House Armed Services Committee, a lot of authority and respect because you joined the Congress after 20 years of service in the U.S. Navy. You went to Annapolis, is that correct? Yes. So what was it like as a woman graduating Annapolis in the 1990s and then leading a career in the U.S. Navy? Well, I was just felt very fortunate to have the opportunities I had. A lot of things changed, actually, while I was at Annapolis. Uh, the Combat Exclusion Act was lifted. So I was in one of the first classes of women from the academy who had the opportunity from the very beginning of my career to serve on combatant ships. And I went to a forward deployed destroyer based out of Japan. Um, and, you know, my whole time in the military, I felt like I was doing something bigger than myself, serving my country. And also it was just a great opportunity as far as a career to, to see the world and, and impact the lives of you know, so many people who I worked with and had the opportunity with. Over well, extraordinary years. career, finishing up your service, the rank of commander. Are you from a naval family? I know you hail from Alabama. Well, one of my grandfathers actually served in the Navy as a supply corps officer in and the other in the Army Air Corps. Um, so a little bit of a Navy connection, um, but I had the chance to visit Annapolis, you know, as a rising senior in high school and uh, honestly the only school I applied to uh, because I was, you know, so excited about the opportunity. Wow. Who was the member of Congress or Senator that provided the recommendation? Um, Congressman Ben Erdrich was our, our representative um, in, in Birmingham at the time. And were you one of the first women he recommended or were there others that were before you came out of your, your district? Actually, uh, there were four people on the street. I grew up on who went to the Naval Academy and two women who were just a couple years older than me lived right around the corner. Wow. Um, so I, I followed in their footsteps and then another um, young man down the street for me, a couple years older than me. So um, maybe there was something in the water. <laughs> in I was about to say, I think I renamed that like Annapolis street in, in Birmingham. That's, that's extraordinary. Now you're not just a, Navy career officer, Annapolis grad from the Naval Academy. You are a kind of graduate, uh, came out of the Navy's nuclear power program, which is really exclusive. Uh, nuclear power ships is one of the kind of elements of, of what makes our Navy so uh, significant, powerful, impactful. Was it super challenging to get through that program? This is uh, 
Admiral Rickover's program of, of, of fame in if naval historians will recall his name? Well, it's definitely a tough process to get in. Uh, first of all, um, you have to have a, a technical background. So everyone at the academy gets a bachelor of science degree, but there's certain minimums as far as your major and, and additional courses that you have to take to even be eligible. And then the infamous interview. Uh, Admiral Rickover was not there when I did. Admiral Bowman interviewed me, but certainly as a midshipman, quite nervous getting on that bus to go to Washington, D.C. to sit down in front of a four-star admiral and be interviewed just to get in the program. And then obviously the academics and all of the training that, that's required um, are quite challenging. Challenging, um, but you know, also rewarding. Had the opportunity to serve on, on two different aircraft carriers, and um, you know, great great career path as as far as I was concerned. I want to talk about aircraft carriers. You continue to lead on aircraft carriers and naval power now that you find yourself in the U.S. Congress outside the Navy. But just for our listeners, perhaps less familiar with the culture in the U.S. Navy, in particular the nuclear power program, for a young person, young naval officer to have an interview with a four-star person who oversees this entire arm of the Navy. I mean, that, that is quite unusual. Obviously, Admiral Rickover began that and it continues in the Navy, but that, that is truly an exceptional experience, correct? It is and quite intimidating. And, you know, I would say that it is really one of the reasons that we've maintained our track record in the Naval Nuclear Power Program um, as far as reactor safety and um, the program retains um, you know, the respect and, and understanding that the that is going to safely operate, you know, hundreds of nuclear reactors around the world um, on all of our ships and, and submarines. A great message of leadership that every single person who comes through that door needs to be approved by the person in charge. Not only do you find yourself on ships and in the Navy nuclear power program, but perhaps with all that training, you did not expect to find yourself engaged in supporting and, and, and serving in the military during these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. You're a veteran of both Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom, of course, land-based conflicts. What was it like being in the Navy with all that training for a land-based conflict? Well, you know, I would say, and kind of in looking at the future for structure of our Navy and the direction we, we need to go is that two decades, the two decades I served, you know, the Navy was supporting land wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And obviously from the deck of an aircraft carrier, um, conducting strikes against terrorist targets in both theaters. Um, and then on other surface ships, I mean, my, my first deployment, um, on a, an old Spruance class destroyer in the, to the Gulf, um, involved in enforcing the oil for food program, um, and stopping smugglers who were smuggling oil out of Iraq. And, you know, there's a lot of roles, that the Navy uh, plays in maintaining stability, the freedom of commerce and, and presence within the, the region. So had the role uh, both on aircraft carriers and then on other surface combatants to deploy to the Gulf and the, the Western Pacific. But to your point, those conflicts, the Navy was in a supporting role as the military would say, primarily. And then now, as we look out in terms of the challenges you're focused on in your service in the Armed Services Committee, you believe as, as do many experts, that the Navy will be in a supported role. That means they are in the lead and other services and elements of our military should be supporting the U.S. Navy. You wrote an op-ed, highly impactful, back in July. The editors gave it the headline, does the Pentagon take China seriously? But the point that you emphasize most is that you are criticizing the Pentagon for a say-do gap. That is, they're saying a lot, perhaps a lot of the right things, but there's a gap between what they say and what they're actually doing. Expand on that for us for a moment. Certainly. Well, you know, 
on the Armed Services Committee, um, as you're familiar and your, your role of having served as the you know assistant staff director there, is that you know every leader in the military, from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the Secretary of Defense, the service secretaries and service chiefs, the chief of naval operations, they come before Congress and they say over and over again, China is our number one competitor, concern, threat. You know, you pick the words, but you know, we are focused on China. Um, and then we get a budget over this year. Um, and I would say that, you know, in previous years before this as well, you know, we didn't get a 30-year shipbuilding plan, um, but we get a budget over that essentially seeks to shrink the size of the Navy. Well, it is, you know, undisputable that, you know, the, the Western Pacific and, and the, the competition or, or gray zone conflict we have going on day to day with uh, China and the region is a maritime theater. And I think that the propensity, the resources need to go to the Navy and the Air Force um, in order to be able to, um, you know, have the right uh, forces that we have in that region. And not only that, but, you know, going into this defense budget this year, it was very clear that we needed to see three to 5% real growth. We, we didn't see that come over. And we also saw a budget that shrunk the size of the Navy. We wanted to decommission seven cruisers, only build one destroyer. We typically build two per year and decommission a whole host of other ships with this idea that we're going to divest today to invest in the future. Um, so we really couldn't let that stand, you know, as it went through the process, the defense bill, the NDAA, um, I worked across the aisle with the uh, Republican ranking member, Mike Rogers from Alabama. And, you know, we sought to add additional resources, put that three to 5% in an additional 24 billion and focus on the things that we need um, in order to, you know, be a, a present in the Pacific. So really plussed up the number of, of surface ships, three destroyers rather than one, preserved three of the seven cruisers that they sought to decommission, sped up the production of Virginia class submarines to three a year, invest in addition of maritime patrol aircraft and also, you know, additional investments in the Pacific Defense Initiative. So really the things that we need um, relative to our role in the Pacific. Wow. I, I just have to say, wow, because uh, the say-do gap that you put forward in your opinion piece in the journal, rarely some months later, in this case, we're talking about four months or so later, can you turn on it and say, actually, we did those things that were lacking and and you just went through a list of things, restoring a number of the ships that were cut, increasing the build, you mentioned of destroyers, overall impacting the amount of money that the Biden administration had requested. You working in a bipartisan fashion added additional dollars to get this real growth. That's a lot to show for. Now, certainly you represent a district in Virginia that cares deeply about the Navy and shipbuilding. So it would perhaps be recognized there and internalized by your constituents. But let me just ask a quick follow on. When you're talking to those who are less familiar with the Navy, perhaps less familiar with the types of challenges our military faces vis-a-vis -vis a China threat, when you tell them, I added 3% to a budget that was already over 700 something billion dollars, do they look at you like, why? How do you explain to them why additional resources is necessary to perhaps that person that is less familiar with the details? I think you can start out by describing, you know, the actions that, that China has been taking, increasingly harassing to its neighbors. You know, we just saw an excessive amount of, of sorties into Taiwan's air defense zone. Um, and the rhetoric that's coming um, out of China is uh, really alarming. And I would say there's a gray zone conflict. It's just the threshold of, 
of, uh, you know, warfare, real conflict that is happening every single day um, in the Pacific theater. And I think that we're not seeing seeing or hearing enough about that. I'd say there's another Seydoux gap between what the commander in the theater uh, perceives to be his role and mission and the challenges he's facing every day, really what's coming out of the, the Pentagon. There were very clear differences between what the outgoing commander, Admiral Davidson, and the incoming commander, Aquilino, who commands all of the forces in the entire Pacific theater, um, you know, says about the risk that we face with regards to China. And let me then- just let me just explain what you're referencing there. Your, your piece elucidates this. I think perhaps the perspective has changed, but at the time, you quoted the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Milley, an individual who's been in the news a lot over the past four or five months, saying that the probability was low in the immediate or near term that China would take action against Taiwan. And what you're referencing is that the commanders in the Indo-Pacific were saying that, no, there is a near-term window where they anticipate China could take action. What kind of action do you think China may take vis-a-vis Taiwan? Well, you know, I think that um, something that's a very big concern to me, and I, I talked about this a little bit in um, uh, a recent op-ed in the Washington Post, you know, about the fact that China could act quickly. They're continuously carrying out exercises um, that simulate an amphibious uh, assault, an amphibious landing, presumably preparing for an ultimate um, execution of this with regards to Taiwan. And I think that something could happen very quickly. Uh, They could be in the midst of their annual large exercise and they could turn right and set a left and literally cross the strait, which is 110 nautical miles roughly very quickly. Um, And we need to be present in the theater. We need to be prepared to react. And, you know, in that other op-ed that I'm referring to, I really talked about the fact that the president's hands are tied with regards to respond as rapidly as would be necessary if a scenario like this unfolded. So the president's hand would be tied. Why? Uh, Clearly the first mover has the advantage. So in the scenario that you've just shared here, if China actually stops exercising and indeed carries out an amphibious attack on Taiwan. That is to say, they just show up on the shores in Taiwan and then occupy Taiwan. The president's hands would be tied. Is that because we are not physically there? We don't have sufficient presence to deter that type of action? Well, I think it's twofold. Um, I'll I'll start with how I think they're tied legally. Um, So uh, the War Powers Act um, does not allow us to respond, except for in cases where U.S. forces are directly attacked, U.S. forces or U.S. territories. So if China, in fact, invaded Taiwan, there's nothing in place in our laws that currently stand today that would allow the president authority to respond in order to defend Taiwan, us to take a preventative measure, a deterrent measure to disrupt the invasion in progress, um, because that would in fact be exactly counter to the War Powers Act, which says that you cannot introduce U.S. forces into areas where hostilities are imminent. Um, So we're really in a a conundrum of how quickly can we respond? I mean, if the president had to then turn around and and come to Congress while these amphibious forces are crossing the strait, you you were familiar with the fact that, you know, Congress take days, weeks, months to respond. But this is a decision if you wanted to to sort of respond in a way that could reduce the scale of the conflict as a deterrent action to prevent China from invading Taiwan. There really are no options there. Um, Interesting. So you're really coming at that point uh, from like a a legal perspective, which of course, given where you sit in the Congress is is understandably the the place to begin. There 
is reporting of late that there are U.S. forces on the ground. You don't have to comment on that. Perhaps that would uh, lead to, you know, there could be a, a sensitivity there on the classified side. But the hook, as far as I understand you saying, is that we know presidents act with respect to use of force, even without congressional authorization. But what has to happen is there needs to be a hook that it's clearly tied to U.S. persons or U.S. military personnel. If you didn't have U.S. military there, then perhaps that hook that allows the president to act without congressional authorization would not be there. Did I have that right? That that's correct. And you know, there's other scenarios where people think, well, you know, China could perhaps attack uh, one of the U.S. territories, such as Guam or a treaty ally, Japan, the Philippines, um, and you know, providing you know reason um, and justification to respond. But you know, truly, just between China and crossing the strait to invade Taiwan without the involvement or attack on any U.S. forces or territories. You know, under the War Powers Act, there's not really uh, an authorization, an opportunity for him to respond using force in that scenario. And if I can take a second to go back to your second part of the question is like, do we have the forces there in the numbers and capabilities required sure. in order to respond? You know, I would say not enough. Um, we obviously have forces, you know, permanently stationed and operating in the Pacific. We have a carrier strike group in Japan. We have an amphibious ready group and other rotational forces. Um, but I truly think that we need to do much more and we need to have much more presence. Um, we need to be literally in their backyard every day with what would be considered a real deterrent, a fact that they would know that the the risks of attacking Taiwan would not be worth the, the benefit because of the overwhelming force um, that we have present within the region. So The cost would be too high given the presence that you would like. It would really change China's calculus. Again, you're sitting there in the people's house representing the views of your constituents. Of course, you try to educate them and lead your constituents to the right outlook, the best policies for this country and this country's security and prosperity. I hear a lot in the discussions around Taiwan, and it's no longer an issue reserved for those inside the Pentagon or inside the Beltway. It's becoming a national conversation. Whether the United States, whether the electorate in the U.S. would actually be supportive of taking perhaps provocative, more assertive action in the Taiwan Straits, the type of presence you're talking about. You know, there is definitely a current in this country where American citizens don't want to take any action that perhaps could lead us to another conflict. People don't even like talking about a Cold War or competition with China for that reason. We just got out of two decades of conflict in Afghanistan, for example. Where do you think the American people are, Congresswoman Loria, with respect to supporting, defending Taiwan? You know, part of what I think the challenge is, is people understanding the overall implications of China taking Taiwan by force. Um, I think it would be a significant disruption to the world order um, if we want to retain um, the, essentially the, the world order and um, you know, maritime superiority within the Pacific between, you know, among US and our allies. Um, it, I think that China taking Taiwan puts that at significant risk. Um, and you can talk about that um, as far as values and, and you know, who we want to have uh, control of that vast region and the majority of our commerce that moves by sea. Um, and from the economic side, I mean, 80% of, you know, international moves by the sea and freedom of seas is incredibly important. 
um, and allowing China to, you know, continue these um, you know, claims, these unrecognized maritime claims that are against international law. I mean, you look at it, I feel like South, China wants to turn the entire South China Sea into essentially a maritime choke point. Um, they've put uh, things in place where they're requiring different types of vessels to report uh, when passing through their territorial waters. That's in contravention to international law where there's free passage allowed through international waters for transit. Um, and so they're just every single day in different ways trying to, to test and push the boundaries of what they can do. Um, and if we were to allow China um, to invade Taiwan unimpeded, um, I think it would have significant um, far-reaching impacts, not only on the United States, but the world order as we see it with regards to our allies, um, both in the Pacific and, and, and the West, Europe as well. And of and course, that see- world order that you describe is a world order that benefits the United States, the American people, in terms of peace and prosperity, you know, the economic side. Yes. And and you can see that, you know, the Europeans um, by and large are, are engaging much more as well. Um, the British have uh, recently deployed their aircraft carrier to the Pacific. The French, you know, most people overlook the fact that 93% of France's exclusive economic zone is already in the Indo-Pacific and they already have standing forces there. Our cooperation with Australia for the submarine construction, the Quad, where we're cooperating with um, Japan, um, Australia and, and India. Um, and a reiteration of the mutual defense treaty with the Philippines, Japan's willingness to come forward and say that they see the Taiwan issue as a self-defense issue. I mean, the list is very long um, of the ways that other countries are. Yeah, it seems to be that the more China acts aggressively, they assert themselves in this manner leads to allies and friends, the United States doing more, stepping in more because they're, they're so concerned on the freedom side, obviously what happened in Hong Kong, in my view, was the greatest assault on on freedom in my lifetime. I th- it'd be hard to, uh, to compare others, perhaps. I mean, in Hong Kong, it was a functioning democracy that now is no longer free and democratic. Yet, I was just talking to an expert a week or so ago who said that investment, U.S. dollars invested in Hong Kong have gone up by 10%. This year alone, year over year. In other words, despite what the PRC and Xi have done to Hong Kong, still getting support of the capital markets of the United States. Do you worry that the same thing can happen? Or do you worry that China's thinking what it did in Hong Kong, it can do in Taiwan? So maybe not the scenario that you painted of a frontal amphibious assault the military, but the more subtle gray zone type of takeover that we saw in Hong Kong, and then the world will just accept it. I think that, you know, the recent history has shown that China has said they're going to do certain things. They've done them and we've accepted it. If you look at these, you know, maritime, they've built them into to island airfields and anti-air defense missile capability. And, you know, we, as we, as the rest of the world allowed them to do this without uh, any consequences. And so, you know, I think that they feel emboldened by things uh, such as that. And it is, you know, very real possibility that they could attempt either by military or non-military means to, to essentially, you know, take over Taiwan um, in the you know, t- current Taiwanese, uh, you know, form of democracy and um, do something very similar to what we've seen in Hong Kong. 
So one of the answers to this challenge is a larger Navy. You sit as vice chair of the House Armed Services Committee. Just a few minutes ago, you rattled off a really impressive list of things that you were involved in working in a bipartisan way to increase the size of the Navy, or at the very least to prevent the Navy from shrinking with this budget. You wrote an essay uh, for War on the Rocks where you reference a a Reagan Secretary of the Navy, John Lehman, who is famous for pursuing the building of a 600-ship fleet. And you go on to say that the Navy needs a bold global maritime strategy that needs to go in the direction of a 600-ship Navy, not just by 2045, but by 2025. In addition to just summarizing that argument for us, also hit on, please, how you respond to those who say, it's not really the size that matters anymore, it's the quality, the old quantity versus quality. We don't need big ships, we don't even need aircraft carriers anymore. Just give me things that are powered by AI and machine learning and autonomy, and that's the way to win in the future. What's your take on that? Well, gosh, you hit on a lot of things there. So if we had a whole other hour, I could probably go in depth. Yeah, do that all in 120 seconds. Yeah, but the, the comment about 2045, the Trump administration uh, put out Battle Force 2045. Unfortunately, it was towards the very end of the administration without really the opportunity um, to start implementing that plan, which would build us towards a larger Navy. I think then you put on top of that the defense budget that we received from uh, the administration this year, which really sought to divest to invest. So getting rid of capability today, for example, seven cruisers, which is over 800 VLS vertical launch cells. Um, and really shrinking the size of the Navy in a time when it's very clear um, that we need to be growing uh, the Navy to deal with the increasing um, challenges that we have in the Pacific. And so, you know, I think that we need to be concerned about what Battle Force 2025 today. We can't gut the Navy today, especially with the looming threat. And like we referenced earlier, Admirals, it's clearly saying that in the next six years, um, you know, trying to military action against Taiwan. So we need to be focused on what we have today, but we also need to build a bigger um, fleet for the future. And, you know, quality versus quantity, I think that it's a question that doesn't have a single answer. I think that, you know, people, you know, sometimes like to pontificate that, you know, the aircraft carrier doesn't have a place in today's fleet, but that's completely wrong. Um, I think that if you look at the agility and the ability to, um, you know, move an aircraft carrier to respond where needed in the world, um, you know, the old adage, 100,000 tons of American diplomacy, I mean, it it really is um, true. And we are, you unique among nations that can do that. Um, And some of the buzzwords you threw out, I mean, I think this AI, machine learning, you know, these different things that, you know, people, we should be doing research on these things. We should be determining how they can be useful for the military in the future. But today they're just buzzwords. I mean, show me a weapon system that is AI and machine learning and quantum computing. I mean, there are things that are, are developing capabilities that will be able to assist us in the future, but you can't get rid of the platforms you have today. You And presence matters. Presence in the theater matters. Um, and, you know, when something goes down, what's the first thing the, car- the president does? I mean, he literally turns uh, to his uh, secretary of defense and says, where's the aircraft carrier? Send me that um, carrier. <laughs> send me that carrier. Um, and so it, it's a mix. And I also think that, you know, the, the high-end capabilities, I mean, we are, in my mind, too focused, too narrowly focused on these higher end capabilities. One of the advantages the the Chinese Navy has in the theater, not only an advantage of distance, but of their home field, 
Um, but the more platforms you have, the more complexity you add to the problem. And every ship that the Navy builds, even the newest frigate that will be coming online, you know, I think is 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 necessary, but we also overshoot some of the capability we need. I think we need some smaller platforms with a large amount of firepower um, that can build more of it at a lower cost to be able to have more presence dispersed throughout the region. So, um, you know, corvettes with naval surf naval um, strike missiles, for example, um, you know, what would be a, a much smaller tonnage ship than we currently build today and multiple, multiple of those throughout the theater. Um, so it's both. I mean, we need to maintain the high-end capability that we have. Um, our real advantage is in our submarine force. Um, and yeah. as you know, we're trying to speed up construction of, of submarines. Um, but also having, you know, a more agile force and the Marine Corps is, you know, really coming into this in a significant way as well with their type of distributed um, operations that they're, they're working to, you know, augment the presence of. Yeah. The Commandant's definitely leading on that front, taking the way the Marine Corps plans to operate and project itself, really responding to some of the challenges we're seeing from China. Um, Let me, let me shift I mean, I completely agree with your skepticism of divest to invest, although I am concerned that we're going to see more of that, not less of that. And there is a a view out there that the only way you can modernize a military and perhaps a Navy is if you divest. Clearly, you don't share that view. I'm going to inartfully shift the discussion just because we only have so much time remaining. The infrastructure bill recently passed. You voted for that just recently, a couple of days ago or so. As far as I'm aware, there was no funding in that trillion dollar measure for the defense industrial base. That is investing in the infrastructure that helps the industries that build our military. Give me your take on that outcome. Was it whether it was a missed opportunity or do you feel we could take care of the industrial base needs elsewhere. I think it was a missed opportunity. Um, and I was a co-sponsor of partisan legislation that would have uh, significantly increased the amount of resources going to our industrial base, specifically our public shipyards, but also to our private shipyard industrial base. Um, just to give you an anecdote, Norfolk Naval Shipyard, which is located here in Smith, Virginia, the dry docks that we're using there date to just immediately post World War One. Um, and if you look, so, at say them, that one okay. more time in Norfolk, right? The dry docks, which for those perhaps less familiar with shipbuilding, that's what you need, right, to build and put out a new ship. They date back how far? Well, this is at the public shipyard. So our submarines, our aircraft carriers, when we dock those, so basically take them out of the water to do maintenance, massive overhaul maintenance to, you know, be able to get the ship out of the water. They date to just immediately post-World War I. Um, And then you couple that um, with things that we see, the sea level rise and recurrent flooding in the region. Um, You know, there's an, is a massive amount of work uh, lost, days lost, time lost, uh, extra money spent. Um, every time a tropical storm or hurricane potentially moves through this region, the increased flooding. I mean, the, there's massive work that needs to be done, not only in the dry docks, increasing our dry dock capacity in all four of our public shipyards. Um, but the infrastructure there is incredibly dated and not efficient. Um, and if you look at you know, some of the delays that we've had in, in maintenance, maintenance on our aircraft carriers, our submarines, it's just compounded. And we really need to make significant investments um, in that infrastructure, especially our public shipyards, um, to make sure that we can, you know, get the maintenance and get these ships 
time. I mean, the delays in maintenance effectively over the last several years have decreased the size of the fleet by about 20% uh, because we've gone to a rotational deployment schedule where ships deploy less frequently. Um, they deploy so less frequently because they need this maintenance and they can't go out. Or some ships deploy twice as frequently because other ships are stuck in maintenance, which we saw multiple times over the last few years. Um, right. So it, and then if they're going out, if they're going out more frequently, that means it reduces their life as well. Correct. Um, it puts incredible screen on the cruise. I mean, there is a limited amount of fuel in the reactors on an aircraft carrier. Um, but, you know, over the course of the life of the ship. Um, when you do those double deployments and skip all maintenance, then you have a backlog, which delays the next availability for maintenance. And, and all of those things just compound um, into a situation where our carrier fleet is stretched very thin. Let's just drill down on public shipyards. We were discussing the infrastructure bill. You know, here we're on the Reaganism podcast. Generally, we want the private sector to fuel the capital. If there's a market for it, the private sector will, will drive capital their way. But when it comes to public shipyards, that's got to fall on the U.S. government. That's got to fall on the U.S. Congress. It's in the Constitution to raise and support navies. What does it cost in your mind to solve the problems you just described with our public shipyards that date back to World War I? How much would it cost? Well, what we were seeking to add to this infrastructure bill was about uh, $25 billion. And, you know, I think that that could do some of the basics for what's a shipyard optimization program that, you know, the, the Navy is already underway implementing. It could speed it up. But the real truth is, is that we have a very large shortage in capability, uh, capacity uh, for maintenance, especially maintenance of our nuclear ships. So that only happens in our four public shipyards and two private shipyards, Newport News Shipbuilding in Virginia, um, here in Hampton Roads, and then and then also Electric Boat. Um, but those yards are the yards that build our ships. We've had a lot of challenges putting on top of the work they already have, building our aircraft carriers, building Virginia-class submarines, now the Columbia-class submarine, which is absolutely essential um, to maintaining one leg of the nuclear deterrent. Um, and, you know, for folks who aren't as familiar with that, you know, the, the um, submarine-based uh, uh, ballistic missile fleet, um, the Ohio class are aging soon to, you know, start being decommissioned, and the Columbia class is essential to replace that. Um, and, you know, as we all know, the nuclear deterrent is the cornerstone of our national defense. We have to have that delivery vehicle, the, the submarines, in order to carry, the, carry those um, strategic assets. Um, so we need more capacity in nuclear-capable shipyards. Um, so I think that that's definitely a place to look and an investment that needs to be made, you know, not only for our public shipyards, but ways that we can, you know, partner and, and have industry make those investments in so private. Huge, huge demands for shipyards, uh, not just for the surface ships, but as you've just outlined, our submarines, the undersea piece, all of that critical for where the thrust of our economic prosperity and our security threats reside out in the Indo-Pacific um, was not included in the infrastructure bill, the trillion dollar infrastructure bill that passed the Congress. Funding needs to come from elsewhere. Uh, you mentioned the importance of our triad, that is our nuclear weapons, all that needs to be modernized. Do you think the Biden administration will continue to support the modernization of our nuclear weapons, our nuclear weapons infrastructure, including, of course, what you reference, the undersea element, the Columbia class? I am looking to see what's going to be in the nuclear posture review um, that will be forthcoming very soon. 
Um, I would say that those things, in my opinion, are absolutely essential to our, our national defense. Um, so um, they, they really have to be uh, yeah, We got a review in. coming out of the Pentagon. There was an article or over the weekend suggesting that there may be some tension between what the, what the White House wants to do versus the Pentagon, uh, not just in terms of the investment of dollars, but also uh, the policy that guides the use of nuclear weapons. I no doubt you'll be following that closely in the Armed Services Committee, but your advice yeah. to the Biden administration would be what? That we need to make the investments to you know, modernize um, all three legs of our nuclear triad. The most pressing um, is for the Columbia-class submarine. Um, and to reference what you just discussed, I mean, I've heard rumors and I've you know, reached out um, to various folks uh, involved in the nuclear posture review process um, to understand if this is real. I hope it's not, um, but that there is some discussion of uh, changing our no first use policy, which I do not agree with. I think that in order to have a viable deterrent nuclear force, um, that uh, any consideration of a no first use policy would validate that. So I just take very 30 seconds. I'm a constituent. You just use the words, no first use policy. I'm looking at you quizzically. Like, what are you talking about? Why does that matter? <laughs> well, in order to have a nuclear deterrent, um, you know, it has to be a situation where a potential adversary could understand that, you know, if they took a particular action um, that necessitated a, a, a reaction from the United States, um, that we would not use a nuclear weapon at all unless one was already used against us. And I think that's inexcusable. And if you have a deterrent, the deterrent impact is the fact that, you know, both you and that adversary have that capability. And the idea of the deterrent is ultimately we we would hope that that neither side uh, would, would use that uh, nuclear capability. But I think removing the no first use or basically telling any potential adversary that like, we'll never use it unless you use it first, you know, it really... Um, you know, lessens the effect. It robs us of the deterrence. I would think that we need, and so why we have the nuclear weapons. And of course, that's been a policy. The current policy has been in place both across Repu uh, Republican and Democratic administrations, all while China, at least in the public reporting, has increased their nuclear weapons. I think the Pentagon came out with a report also last week or so saying that China's increased their nuclear weapons inventory up by a th thousand or so now. Yes, obviously very concerning and just makes the importance of maintaining a viable deterrent that much more essential. All right. So now we've depressed all our listeners in terms of <laughs> the, the challenges and threats we face, but knowing that you're fighting for good policy to help address all of that, put on your political cap here for a moment. Um, you do a lot in a bipartisan way. The Luger Center identified you as being in the top 10% of Congress for bipartisanship. A lot of the issues we've discussed today, there are opportunities to work on in a bipartisan fashion, as you've outlined. Is that because of your background serving in the U.S. military and the Navy? What do you do to drive a culture of bipartisanship in the Congress? I'm pretty sure it doesn't happen naturally in the U.S. Capitol. Well, you know, I think it does relate back to my time in the service and an anecdote I like to give is, you know, deployed on an aircraft carrier in the North Arabian Sea, we're simultaneously launching strikes against terrorist targets in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, I would never have turned to the reactor operator right next to me and said, hey, are you a Democrat or Republican? I mean, we have a mission. We have to accomplish that mission. And I really approach my work um, as a legislator in the same way that, you know, we have to find common ground and find the things that we can work together to, you know, do good for our constituents. And so, 
you know, I think that it's something as well with the delegation that's very unusual amongst delegations around the country. We're the only one I know of that meets very regularly on a bipartisan basis. So um, all, all the members in the House of Representatives from Virginia, plus both Republican senators, and Democrat, and your senators, yeah. okay, and very frequently regularly. the governor. Wow, wow. Uh, yes. What is that? What is what does regularly mean? Um, we meet every month and our chiefs of staff meet every month. So every other week there's a full Virginia delegation meeting. And is it just very pragmatic, practical? How's the state doing? What do we need to do? I mean, it's a way to come together. Um, you know, we generally, somebody picks up the lunch, you know, whether it's Chick-fil-A <laughs> or sometimes, uh, you know, sandwiches, but, you know, an opportunity to, to sit together and talk about the things we're working on that we can find common ground on and whether it's transportation issues, the port of Virginia, we're the third largest port on the East coast. Um, we're going to be dredging to be the deepest port on the East coast. That's already underway. Um, the, the Chesapeake Bay, you know, when I tell people that I was able to pass and get signed into law by president Trump last administration, major environmental legislation with my Republican colleague, who's my neighbor on the other side of the Chesapeake Bay, um, for Chesapeake Bay cleanup funding, a five-year reauthorization that hadn't been done since 2013. Um, you know, people <laughs> raise some eyebrows, like really that happens. And, you know, those aren't the things that always um, make the headlines, um, at least outside of our local area, but there's so many opportunities to work together. And I'm fortunate to serve on several committees where that is, you know, the, yeah, you do that in the armed services committee, veteran affairs, affairs, Homeland security. Sure. It's um, also because Virginia, I would think incentivizes, or at least doesn't punish you for that kind of behavior. I think about Virginia, course uh glenn youngkin was just elected governor it's purple perhaps it's blue in the sense that democrats have been winning more often but republicans also are office holders in virginia and so i would think you got to also legislate to the center that it's not the type of environment as we have elsewhere across the country where you really got a legislators they want to stay in office they tend to be more partisan and 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 go to the end of the spectrum, either for the left or for the right. Is that a fair explanation? You know, I think it is. And one of the things that I, you know, I think surprises people the most, but they're really, really um, enthusiastic and responsive to it is when I tell them, you know, how closely our delegation works together. And, um, you know, we're really looking forward to, to hosting Governor-elect uh, Youngkin at our, you know, next Virginia delegation meeting when he's available um, so that we can start talking about how between the federal and state level um, we we continue working together on behalf of Virginians. So, you know, it's the norm, um, I think. And I think also people really, especially in, in the Hampton Roads area, so that's coastal Virginia for people who are not as familiar. Um, I think a lot of people focus more on, you know, the individual who represents them than the party. Um, we're about split evenly, one third, one third, one third, Democrat, Republican, and independent. You know, an anecdote that I like to tell is I actually voted for the guy in 16 who I ran against at 18. I mean, just kind of <laughs> an indicator of um, what our district is like and, um, you know, how how people expect someone to go and um, represent the interests of, of everyone um, in the district, regardless of political party. Yeah, that's super interesting. It's a competitive state across many office holders. Your district certainly is no exception there. You're completing your, your second term. Were you surprised by the Youngkin outcome? I would say that as we got closer to the last couple of weeks of the campaign, um, it became clear that he had gained a lot of momentum. And I could really speak directly for the, the, the area of Virginia Beach and the area where I live. 
Um, I definitely saw more support and more visible support for him than I had seen for other Republicans in you know the previous election. So um, very disappointed, obviously, because sure. you know, I mean, I, I was a supporter of of, of Terry. McAuliffe You're out there the supporting McAuliffe, right? Um, but and I, you know, was supported him because of his successful track record for business in Virginia when he was governor uh, previously. Um, so, you know, I think that the the Youngkin campaign um, threaded a needle uh, between, um, you know, some different factions of the Republican Party um, and were able to turn out more people. Um, so, you know, but what is good for Virginia is that the, the current and next administration continue to be successful in bringing business to Virginia, improving education, improving you know, environmental issues with the Chesapeake Bay. You know, I think all of those things are not partisan issues, and, and I can intend to continue to work closely with the administration in Richmond um, to make sure that the interests of our community are, are moving forward. Let's jump to our lightning round. Congressman Larry, great conversation. Got to a lot of uh, interesting issues on the national security side of the house. Also deeper understanding of what goes on in Virginia, young canal outcome. Now let's get your favorite book on president Reagan, your favorite speech by president Reagan or, and, or your favorite quote by president Reagan share with us your favorites. Well, I would say that my, my favorite book, and I enjoyed reading this because it had such an insight um, into his thought process and what his experience as president was like, was the Reagan Diaries. Mm. And um, I think uh, my favorite quote, and this might be reflected in some things we said earlier, um, is that our military strength is a prerequisite to peace. Um, and he says, but let it be clear, we maintain the strength in the hope that it will never be used. Um, and then uh Lastly, I think my, my favorite speech um, was the speech that he gave, the Peace Through Strength. I think that was in um, 1980. Great responses, all of which we applaud here at the Reagan Institute on Reaganism. Congressman Luria, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you again for having me.